Welcome back, listeners. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. This is Unstandardized English, the podcast where we analyze the racial connotation of select words and phrases. I am your host, J.P.B. Gerald, and just as a quick refresher, I am a doctoral student at CUNY's Hunter College in New York, and my research focus is the intersection between racism and language education, which is a lot of fun to look at, let me tell you. On today's episode, we're going to talk about acronyms. Not the concept of acronyms, but specific acronyms. Our field, which I usually refer to as ELT, which, if you don't know, stands for English Language Teaching, is absolutely chock full of acronyms, some of which are helpful, some of which are harmful, and many of which are used for marginalization. So speaking of acronyms, my MA, which is for Master of Arts, is in TESOL, which stands for Teaching English Speakers of Other Languages. The, the very first thing we learned in one of our classes way back in 2010 was all the different acronyms that are used across the field. You got your EFL for English as a foreign language. You got ENL, English as a new language, which didn't even really exist when I learned all of these in 2010. We got EAP for English for academic purposes. ELF, English as a lingua franca, and I know it is spelled like elf, but they still use it. Uh, ESP, which is not about knowing what other people are thinking, but is English for specific purposes, which is also kind of a meaningless thing to say, but anyway. Uh, everyone knows about ESL, English as a second language, and frankly, out of sheer laziness, when I was teaching part-time years ago, it was just easiest to describe myself as an ESL teacher, because uh, people know what that means, despite the fact that I loathe that acronym. To focus on ESL for a second, my students at the time were trying to increase their knowledge of English, surely, but there was no guarantee that they were not already familiar with more than one language, or even familiar with English. Now, monolingualism is not the norm in most of the world, uh, but just because it's the norm in our regressive country, we shouldn't refer to the teaching of the language this way. I'll get more into this in the conversation, though ESL is thankfully already falling out of favor with many and it's not used as much. Now, what is used still, especially in K-12 public schools, is ELL for English language learner, or... Many of the teachers I know, they just call their students L's, like E-L-L turned into a word. This is problematic for a different reason, because students are often placed into these classes merely by struggling with what is referred to as standard English. Uh, the English they struggle with isn't really an objective norm, because no such thing exists, uh, but it's one that has been chosen by dominant groups. This is all why this podcast is called Unstandardized English, because I'm seeking through these conversations to question the assumptions and implications behind the words we're using as descriptors. The essential ethos of this podcast is that no word is without deeper meaning, and what we assume carries no weight only feels that way to those who have not been marginalized. So I'm going to stop my intro here. The, in, the episode is going to cover several acronyms, including the ones mentioned above, and the goal is to problematize the discriminatory, to celebrate the equitable, and to perhaps discover new acronyms that would serve the field and its learners better than the ones we already have. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. This is different. All right, so this is episode two. Uh, my guest today is Lydia Villaranga. They are also a doctoral student at CUNY, although they're at the Graduate Center, and they're studying urban education. So before we get into all of the acronyms, Lydia, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're 
reading and studying so far? Sure. So I am in my first semester here in the urban education doctoral program. So the two courses that I'm taking right now are a history of education, historical perspectives on urban ed is the actual course title. And then my other class that I'm taking, my other academic class that I'm taking is pedagogy in the urban classroom. So on the one hand, my history class, we're really looking at the kind of social economic foundations of the education system here in the country. And then in the pedagogy class, it's more thinking about theories of curriculum um, and, and that whole thing. Who's teaching the history class? That's Steve Breyer. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I have uh, one of the people who's, who has run this program before, t- has taught me before, but we don't it. need, it's not it's not the same person, so we don't need to get in all and that. My, just, just for the sake of consistency, my pedagogy professor is Limadi Scarabayo, who's based out of Queens College. Ah. She's here on the consortium faculty, though. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of sharing around. I mean, I like that, yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, sometimes people are in different places and it's hard to find people. So there's a lot of acronyms in the the field. Um, I went through a a few in my little intro. Um, Myself, I tend to refer to the field that I come from as ELT, English Language Teaching, because I tend to think that's the least problematic of them because, you know, you are teaching the language of English. However, we can get into, well, you know, what does it mean that the language is English and so on and so forth. But there's so many. So nine years ago when I started my master's program, uh, the first thing we learned was acronyms. So we knew what we were talking about when we read material. And everybody knows ESL. And I found out, despite the fact that I'd been doing it for two years, that what I had been teaching in South Korea was not ESL, but EFL. English is a foreign language because they don't tend to speak English in South Korea. And then there's all these things we know about, like ENL, which, you know, is now used a lot in schools. English is a new language. Then, of course, like, is it really new? And so on. Um, And then, of course, there's ELL, English Language Learner, which is its whole other thing. And then the entire field often refers to itself as TESOL for teaching English speakers of other languages. And that's what my actual master's is. I have an MA in TESOL. Sometimes you can say ESOL if you just want to leave the teaching off, but it means the same thing. Um, And then there's a whole bunch of other stuff like English for specific purposes, which is ESP. Yes, like ESP, (laughs) Um, which... As, as I just said, it, it, it's kind of a like meaningless thing to say. What are the, what are the purposes? Yes. Yeah. Specific, just very specific. Um, and then there's English for academic purposes. Yeah, there's, you, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a lot of them. Uh, but the whole point is that on the one hand, we do need to be specific about what we're doing in the classroom when we're teaching. Uh, but on the other hand, each of these comes with problems, Mm -hmm. potentially, depending on how they're used and who they're placed upon. So why don't we start with with ESL, which uh, at least has become somewhat problematized in the general discourse, but still is being used by some people. When you think of the phrase ESL, English as a second language, what are some of the issues that you have with it when you hear the phrase? Um, I remember when I was... First, starting to engage in conversation with people who were working more specifically in this context of teaching 
English to people who, you know, for whom it's not their native language. The thing that a lot of people have brought to my attention is how people can automatically just get placed in ESL classes regardless of any prior knowledge on the part of the school as far as what that student's linguistic capacity really is to engage with English material. Um, and so it's been really interesting to speak with people to see how there seems to be this kind of crossover between schools reading kids as both needing to be like in special education and also needing to be in ESL classes. And so um, my experience with that is really just what my peers have, have kind of taught me um, through their work. And it just seems like if you have a name that doesn't seem like you come from an English background, whether it's a name that sounds like my last name, Villarongo, or, you know, indicates some other, you know, country of origin, it's very likely that someone will just slap that label on you um, and throw you in classes to, to get your English skills up without even checking. The thing that I'm talking about in the in the next episode with accents because a lot of that you know there's the name and then there's the way that they perceive how you speak even if you're using the exact same words mm -hmm. that other people are using if they sound a little bit different then you know that label often gets applied to you even if there is nothing quote-unquote out of place in the syntax or the grammar or whatever it is um, and to be clear, obviously people who were raised in English-speaking homes will occasionally use grammar in different ways, but they're not placed in these into these groups or given these labels. Uh, it's really, it's tied a lot of the time to the names, to the accents, and the way people look. And if they don't look like what people are considering, depending on where you are, American, then wait a second, let's see if we can track them into that. Like special education which is a whole other topic, yeah. <laughs> uh, has a lot of regulations on when people are placed in, when people have to be notified, and so forth. But uh, language learning, it, it, it's not quite as regulated, and that's a lot of why the uh, automatic tracking happens, because there aren't as, you know, you can't just, although I'm sure they try, you can't just throw someone in a special ed class. Right, right. But you can, well, you know, I think his English needs to improve. And a lot of the time, the parents don't understand because they're told, hey, you know, and especially if they don't speak a, a Spanish or a Chinese or something where there is a quorum of students who speak that language. Mm -hmm then uh, they don't usually have support yeah. to, you know, have things translated perfectly to them. They just know, well, the school is, says they're going to help my kid. So you go along with that. And then I've been reading things where they get to high school and they, uh, they graduate with sort of a lesser diploma or something mm -hmm. like that because it is... Uh, and then it's not really explained very well to the parents. You're saying because they had been categorized yeah. as an English language learner. Right. Either an English language learner or both English language and a special education mm -hmm. learner. So yeah. they, they get a sort of like like an associate's version of a, of a right. <laughs> high school degree. Not to, you know, discredit associate's degrees. but No, but it's still but. not held in the same stature as the degree that you'd be leaving with right. if you hadn't had all of those labels mm -hmm. put on you. Yeah, and then, so, and then, of course, with ESL, it's also just often just incorrect because it might not be your second language. Yeah, yeah. You know, it could be third, fourth, fifth. Um, people come in speaking two or three languages, and that is just, there, there's no, 
um, consideration for that linguistic ability. Yeah, I remember two summers ago, I was teaching at a program that's all about college prep, effectively. And I've worked as an ELA instructor there for about three years. And I had a student two summers ago who was, he wasn't from Mali, but that was the country that he had lived in immediately before coming to the United States. And I can't remember where he told me he was born, but I remember we were trying to figure out how to get his personal narrative essay to some state of completed ish. Right. Um, and I remember all of the instructors around me were so frustrated about his behavior in class and all of these other secondary things. And I remember just asking him one day, what languages do you speak? Mm-hmm. And he had to count on his fingers because before even encountering English, he was speaking French, he was speaking Arabic, and he was speaking three other African languages. And in that moment, when I had that conversation with him, I realized, first of all, this child is amazing. (laughs) Second of all, how can I support him with this meta goal of producing a personal narrative without overemphasizing English as the vehicle to the storytelling. And it's so difficult for me as an educator to have this mindset of my students are carrying so many languages inside of them, but I am only allowed to pull out their ideas in one. Um, and, and I will never forget that moment because it was just, it, it just expanded my, my sense of empathy for him and the struggles that he was having in the classroom and really just got me thinking about how to decenter English in language arts education in a place that is culturally diverse as New York City. You mentioned ELA, which wasn't even on my list, but it's a whole, it's another acronym (laughs) of the things that's not specifically language education but it is important because ELA which I don't even know when that was created 10 years ago 15 something all of a sudden it was ELA you're never an English teacher anymore you were just it was ELA uh and it's a strange name because I think they're trying to convey that it's not just literature when they're in those classes but I don't think I think they just sort of took three words and put them in one place. (laughs) And then they said, you go and figure out what that means to you. You know, how do you feel about the way ELA or English language arts in general is, is sort of conceptualized in, in, in schools where you've worked? Um, that's such an interesting question because for me, obviously my first exposure to education was on the receiving end right? as a student. Mm -hmm. And I was always, a STEM kid. I was always into math and science because I didn't feel the same social and emotional friction that I felt when I was in my history classes and my English classes because I just felt like there was no representation of me in the material that I was encountering. And it wasn't until I was in 11th grade that I had the opportunity to take an elective in my English requirements in high school that was a class around Latin American and Caribbean literature and that was a real turning point for me in terms of thinking about what was actually happening in my English classroom and I felt like there was so much more work 
being put towards giving me a sense of what counted as literature in my classes. And I rejected that and really didn't want to read all of the Jane Austens and the Shakespeare's because I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't speak to me. And so I just feel like as it relates to, to ELA, there's something so much more complicated than just teaching kids how to read or teaching them English. I remember in, in my English class that I took as an undergrad, my professor was really emphasizing that the way that we teach literature in this country is actually more a project around establishing a national identity. Um, and it's more about establishing cultural identity when you start expanding it out into these other nations that are producing texts in English. Um, but I think that there's two very different things going on. There's what we're saying is happening and what's actually happening. And I think that it's actually a program of, of, of a culturalization that's happening in the English classroom more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, one could call it cultural indoctrination, but, you know. You one, know. <laughs> you know one, might, one might. I remember I liked English class when I was growing up, but it was more my teachers that I yeah. liked than the, than the material. I mean, yeah, I had to be Shakespeare and all that, but um, I remember really connecting with those teachers um and i found some of the books resonated for in different ways than i expected them to but then there were all these books like johnny tremaine and stuff that were just like and here is this boy in the 18th century and i was just like come on like you know <laughs> i thought that i was just like you know not a good student um in in these classes but i just didn't really find the books to be resonant for me so um and when you think about i'm just sliding onto other acronyms uh, the uh you know the things now are enl and ell you know i know when i hear ell i often hear teachers mush it into one word and just call it l mm-hmm. you know I, my l students my l's um, and I don't know if that's better or worse than saying ELL, but it's, uh, they don't seem to have an identity beyond mm. the, uh, their label as ELL students. And, you know, I don't know enough about the standards as to how one might quote unquote escape the label of ELL. Um, I'm sure there is a standard somewhere, but how one does it is a whole nother question uh and then i know that there are also people who are classified as like long-term english learners which sounds positive but it's also saying but you couldn't get out fast enough yeah like i've i remember doing some reading earlier this year that was talking about how when you when you get that long-term label it is actually one of the worst things that can happen to you as a student in this classification system and it was it was really mind-boggling for me to start thinking about how politicized the lang- the label English language learner really is. And I was examining this in the context specifically of dual language programs, mm-hmm. where you would think that there would be some bi-directionality in terms of who's a language learner. But the standard for English language learners to achieve a target level of mastery in English far exceeds anything that is ever expected of those native English students and whatever the other language is in the dual language program. And so to think of that disconnect and then on top of that adding this other layer of this this worsening classification of long-term language learner, it's really kind of horrifying to me to think of the experience that children are having in school and the messages that, that they're internalizing about their ability to just communicate. The 
I think of because sometimes people say MLL and that's you know it's better because um, I had a MLL. from multilingual oh, okay. yeah. Um, Again, that doesn't really mean anything, right? Because everybody could be a multilingual learner if they're learning a language. But, you know, they like to create acronyms. Uh, But I think about um, how quote-unquote bilingual programs are often marketed to more affluent schools. And it's like, look at this skill you will pick up. Look at this feather you can put in your cap for college. Mm -hmm. Not that it's a bad thing for them to learn languages. Uh, It's a good thing. But uh, it's... You know, everything is additive. It's seen as additive. It's, you know, it's like, oh, look, could you speak French? And I'm not saying that I wasn't a person who learned French in middle school for the same reason. Um, although I kind of forgot a lot what I learned. But uh, the way it's seen for these folks, or us, myself, was that it's just something added to you. Whereas if you are someone who has the English learner label, you might speak several other languages, but you're only... Um, classified according to how much English you can or cannot use. Mm -hmm. And if you are lacking in some way or seen as lacking in English in some way, that all the other, you could speak nine languages. You're not thought of as bilingual or multilingual or whatever uh, by many people in the, you know, the classification system. You're just an ELL and that's that. Mm -hmm. You could speak like your student could speak however many languages, but you're an ELL and that's, that's it, you know? Um, Or if you think about ENL, English as a new language, Again, it could be seen as neutral because you're just saying new to this country or something. That's what I think they mean by that. But most people in the world, English isn't completely new. They've seen it. You know, it's the dominant language and discourse if they've been not, you know, I don't know how. Every, people have different levels of income, but they, if they've seen television or the Internet or anything like that, English has been there somewhere. No one is compl- almost no one is completely new to the language. What they mean is they don't speak it in the way that we expect or demand that they do, so they are going to be classified in this fashion. Um, and uh, I think that it's just it's problematic to me the way that bilingual, you know, or anything like that is often used for, you know, affluent learners or usually white learners, but, you know, sometimes one or the other or both. Mm -hmm. Um, And for students like the one you just mentioned, they're really just seen, as we would all know, from a deficit perspective and never really given the same sort of, you know, credit or praise for how many things they can do. It's just look at this one thing that you are seen as not being able to do, even though they really like the fact that they're able to communicate at all is really impressive so i don't know i've just sort of said a lot of things in a big circle but that's uh those are a lot of the thoughts i have about those things and the fact that you know bilingualism is sort of seen this way as opposed to you know being seen the way it really should be yeah it's really interesting to, to to think of how depending on what your kind of language starting point is the other languages that you speak are more or less valued. So it's yeah. like if you're starting with English, then you start stacking all those other things on, then that's amazing. Those are, you know, gems in your crown. But if English is the is the gap and you have ten other languages that you speak, it's kind of insane to think of how the weight of those ten is somehow perceived as less than the weight of the one that the native English speaker, you know, adds on. I... I had a coworker um, a few years ago, maybe five, six years ago, and I worked at a senior center, and she was Korean, and 
communicated very well, you know, no issues there, but obviously had, had you know, she was, she had lived in Korea her whole life, so she had an accent, and, well, I should say she had a Korean accent, and, um, to the seniors, they saw her as, well, she, she doesn't speak English. They would say things like, well, I don't, you know, like, we, they should get someone to run this place because she doesn't speak English. And then they would respect people more who, you know, spoke more standardized American English, even if they didn't know what they were doing or what they were saying. Um, to, to, to them, you know, a certain type of speech, whether it was accent or grammar or whatever, just a certain image and speech was more worthy of respect and consideration even if, like, if you took the person's face and voice out of it, the language was no worse or better or anything. Like, it was exactly the same. In fact, probably better. Yeah. I'm I'm reminded of something that I saw. So I, I should never read the comments. Never read the comments. It's yeah. always a bad move. But I was reading the comments one day on a Coursera course. And you think it might be better, but you would think, right? Because you would think the users on Coursera have some degree of critical thinking that they're going to employ before they. You just start. think they you wouldn't just... be incurious because you're doing something that connotes curiosity. So what? What blew? I, I wish that I had taken a screenshot because I can't even remember that. The, the institution that was putting the online mm-hmm. course material out there, but it was, you know, in broad strokes, it was definitely a top tier university and the presenter did not have an American accent. And I remember seeing a comment from someone who I read as a white woman saying, you would think that they could find someone who could at least speak English clearly to give us this course material. And it blew my mind that her commentary was not about the substance of the course that was being presented, but but rather some attack on the way that he spoke in the language that she presumably understood. And her critique was not, I couldn't follow this. I didn't know what he was saying. It was literally, you don't speak English the way that I want you to. And that's a problem. I mean, it reminds me of some of the, some of the, you know, things were just actual fine jokes. But I remember when the Marie Kondo thing got really, or the show got really big. Was it this summer? Or in spring or something like that. And um, people were like... T- say, walking around saying spark joy isn't necessarily, you know, problematic because it is an unusual thing to say. However, then people started, because you know how people are. They started with, uh, you know, making fun of, you know, a malapropism or things that were placed, you know, in what they considered to be the wrong place. And it's just like, okay, so you speak Japanese then, and then you tell me how all of the things you say are exactly how you expect them to sound to several million people or whatever were watching the show. Um, or how in a lot of, maybe this is 20 years ago, but when I used to watch ESPN and, you know, people uh, would be interviewed and they're from other countries and they actually were speaking perfectly standardized English, but, well, we, we need to put subtitles on them, but not for other people. It's, if you're going to put subtitles on everybody, fine, you know, whatever. It's fine. It's good for, for um, people hearing impaired and things like that. But if you're only going to put it on people because they have an accent or something, it's you're just sort of placing them in um, 
in these boxes that there's nothing they can do to get out of. I mean, I don't want to say too much about accents because that's the whole next episode, but (laughs) just because, like, uh, so I end up repeating myself, even though I recorded it yesterday. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a problem. And I think about, I've said standardize a lot. Because mm-hmm. for, first of all, it's like the name of the podcast, but um, <laughs> but also it's uh, when we are in class. A lot of the expectation is that we are teaching our students, quote unquote, standard English. Mm. Right now, is there a standard in the sense that a standard has been chosen by dominant groups? Sure, that exists. There are quote-unquote errors, you know, and then, of course, you think about, well, there there is a line in terms of if someone truly cannot be understood to say what they're trying to say, then you want them to be able to have the right words at their disposal to say those things. Mm-hmm. So you can't just have a complete free-for-all where, you know, no, no word has any meaning whatsoever. Like we can't, we can't do that. You know, like because some people will go that, and it's like, all right, come back, come back to here, come back to reality, please. I get, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. But if the word say doesn't mean say, like we have to, you know. But the, the basis of human communication is that words have meaning. Right, right. The problem is when because the whole idea behind the podcast is when we're using these words to mean things that I'm not sure we want to be meaning, you know? Um, Because when you think about all the other acronyms, like English for academic purposes, all of these are different ways of saying um, a subset of standardized English. Mm. You know, there's, we say we want people to learn academic English. We want people to learn business. Business English is a whole, you know, like, I know because the ELT field is not incredibly lucrative, many people teach business English to business people uh, privately and things like that. And what they're learning is some of it's vocabulary about like things that they're doing in whatever field that that business person does. And they just need to know, okay, how do I say transaction? How do I say things like that? But if all they needed was vocabulary, they don't really need to go to class. What they're learning is... What are the social norms around this? You know, so much of this language discussion is, okay, but what are the expectations socially for me to use? You know, what words am I expected to be using in these contexts? And I think if we at least were upfront about that, I don't think it would be as much of a problem for me. But people don't want to be upfront about things. If they said, look, I'm going into a business context, I'm dealing with, white American men. I'm dealing with the people that I'm going to deal with. What is it that they're going to expect me to be able to say? And then I could tell them, all right, well, they're going to expect this. Well, then look, we're being upfront. We know that there's an expectation coming in and so forth. We should do the same thing, I think, when we, especially when we talk about like college prep and things like mm-hmm. that. They're saying, what do you need to do to get into college or get into the workplace? Like what do I? What part of myself do I need to sand down mm. so I can be acceptable in these contexts? Is what's being said without saying it, mm-hmm. and it's a lot of the issue with um, these acronyms where we're just sort of leaving out the subtext. And if we are going to be working with language, we need to actually say what we're trying to say, so yeah. that we're not just leaving people wondering what's left. I'm uh, I'm reminded of another experience that I had at this organization that I teach at where 
one of my colleagues was talking about the issue of code switching in the classroom and the standard, right, mm-hmm. of expression that he holds students to in his classroom. And he unambiguously privileges, right, American standardized English. And his rationale for being so on his students about editing their speech in their out loud communication, their spoken communication was effectively that he was getting them ready for some hypothetical college professor. You know, he he used the phrase, I'm getting them ready for that asshole professor that they'll inevitably meet one day. And me and my other colleagues were like, but that's you now on Saturday morning. They don't have to wait to get to college to encounter someone who's... Is he saying that to them or is he just telling that to you? Like he this rationale that that he's explaining. I don't know that he was rationalizing it to his students because I never saw well, yeah, any no. sort of communication happening, you know, between him well, and his yeah, students yeah. on this. But that I was just what nobody he was, was telling you. Right. About that, that was what he was telling me and my colleague, you know, What's, in what, the break room. What I think is interesting is if he started by saying that before the class started, like first day, and he said, look. There's going to be some people who, and then he starts explaining stuff. And it said, like, I don't have a problem if you, whatever, whatever, we need to think about, okay, here in this room, this is fine. Understand that, whatever. And then we're going to prepare for that as if we're in an interview or whatever it is. I don't know what the class is. Uh, Then I think giving the actual framing would be then it might make some sense but all he's doing is just replicating it and not telling them anything yeah. well then then you're just you're just you're just punishing them for talking yeah um and you know it it sort of reminds me it's not quite the same thing for the rationale that i hear from um you know, certain schools where they're like, well, we have to discipline them because life is going to discipline them. And it's just like, I mean, you're not wrong about the second half of your sentence. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the first half of your, it's like, or you could tell them about these things and then they could be prepared. You know, like, you, you, I think if people were, it's, it's all this like, they'll be prepared by being scared thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting to think about the different motivations that people bring into what I think is ultimately very abusive ways of dealing with young people or just human beings in general. You don't have to be a young person to be encountering new language learning spaces. Um, But, you know, for me, like my whole thing is always, what is the quality of the idea? Are you able to construct a thought and how does it come out and how can I support you by thinking about all of the the vocabulary that you have at your disposal and all of the constructions that you have at your disposal to express yourself but that's very different from other people that are trying to get students to align their expression with a very narrow standard of, of what language should look like or sound like or feel like I remember when because you know I didn't know any better when I started uh, teaching not because that's a good excuse, but because I just really didn't know. I learned from my my colleagues and from the places where I was working that we're not to allow other languages in the classroom, mm-hmm. especially when I was in Korea. I was told by the people who ran the school, and this was a public school in Korea, like they must speak English in the classroom. 
I'm 21. I'm not going to be like, hey, so I think that that privilege, like I'm not, you know. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Also, I didn't, I wouldn't, didn't have the words to articulate that. And they also only spoke with so much English themselves. So what was I really going to say? Um, and if I had allowed them to speak Korean, it also would have reflected poorly upon me and I needed to have a job. Uh, it would have been difficult to fire me because they really didn't fire people to do that, but then it might have been harder to stay the second year and so forth. Anyway, these are all excuses for why people do things incorrectly. But uh, I kept that with me in other contexts. I came back here to New York and I was told in almost every place that I worked that it was going to be an English-only classroom. And I didn't really question it because I thought that was just the only way. Like, how are they going to learn English if they don't speak it? Mm-hmm. Um, and there is research that shows that, yes, time on task, like actually speaking the language obviously helps you speak the language. The flip side of that is that people take it so far where they're, you know, unable to use any other languages and then they feel as though they can't communicate at all and it, you know, people feel uncomfortable. And I think that in some of my previous experiences, I was making people uncomfortable without knowing it because I I just thought, well, this is the discomfort of learning a new language. It's like, but there's, there's no reason to add discomfort to that. It's already uncomfortable. Why make things worse for them? Why make yeah. things harder for them? You know, they should be as comfortable as possible. Yes, they shouldn't just be shouting at each other in different ways uh, because, well, then nobody will learn anything. But classroom management is not the same as like, being a disciplinarian or there's a difference between being authoritative and authoritarian Mm. you know what i'm saying um and having rules does not mean you have to be abusive as you say speaking of that i remember in in korea it was and i don't know if this is still the case it's 2019 people listening in 2008 when i was there it was uh, I don't know if it was legal or illegal, but it was perfectly socially acceptable for the students to hit their kids. With They all had an individualized stick. It was kind of weird. And I don't mean to say this in a way to like look, <laughs> look down on South Korea because plenty of plenty of things are terrible here in the United States. So I don't mean to, to say that it's worse. Sure. It's just different. Uh, but I knew I wasn't going to do that. But then I realized that that was the only way that they had been disciplined in that school. Mm. And in many schools. And in fact, they were still being disciplined that way in their other classes. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of, I'm saying all this for a reason, because a lot of these sort of, a lot of these abusive practices happen because people had them happen to them and they don't know any better. Right. And it's a shame, but it's also understandable because if you have been raised this way, um, you have to go and learn to be different. So I both blame them because you're an adult, you should figure it out. But I also understand it because if all you've ever learned is one path, then, you know? Yeah. So the one thing that I was thinking to sort of finish off is that I'm thinking, and no one's going to listen to me because I'm just a person, but uh, I'm thinking in myself, it's not going to get me anything published because no one's going to know what I'm talking about. But I'd like in my head to think of what I do, although I don't actually teach English right now, but um, the field that I work in, I want to call it teaching standardized English because if I say that I'm teaching standardized English, I can still teach the same English, the same words, the same grammar, the same thing. But by calling it standardized, I'm also bringing in the fact that it's been chosen by people. Um, And if so, then it would be TSE, another acronym, whatever. 
Um, and if I do that, I can talk about why am I calling it standardized English? And then we can have not you, but people can have a dialogue about what it is that it means to call it that because the naming of a course also changes who signs up. Mm -hmm. And if you tell people in advance, this is called standardized English, and in the first class you talk about what does that mean, then you're setting the groundwork for a course that's going to look at things really differently. I think that that would be good, but I'm just, you know, I don't even teach English right now, so I'm just making things up. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I really like that idea because I think that you have to be able to create a frame that is both wide enough and narrow enough to be helpful. Um, and when you use words like helpful, it's like, okay, well, helpful towards what end? And, and to who? Right. And so I think you and I are probably in a similar space where we're thinking about bringing a more liberatory focus into English education. And by using this label, standardized English, you immediately signal there are many types of English and there are other layers to this language, but we are just here talking about one and it gives you a very natural entry point to start helping students deconstruct some of the other assumptions that we carry with us about language. I think that, that it's a really subtle but effective way to just widen the scope of the conversation about what's actually being taught. You have convinced me to try to write about this and see if people want to listen. <laughs> if you notice that, that one was a little bit clearer and you could actually hear my voice for once, that's because I was not speaking to the person over the phone. Uh, it's rare that I'm going to have a chance to do that because most people that I speak to about these things are not people I've ever met before. Um, or I've met them, but they don't live anywhere near here. So uh, I hope you enjoyed the treat of actually hearing my voice. Whether or not you consider that a treat is uh, to be determined. But uh, I'll be back in two weeks with my already recorded third episode about accents. And I will speak to you. Well, I will speak at you then. <laughs>